Good morning, all again. In the U.S., tomorrow is Labor Day, a day for workers to rest and to honor them, or in a more modern tradition, to drive home from vacation. And while I've promised to talk about our own volunteer work here at East Shore, I need to say several words about the organized labor movement and labor unions. The rest of the world celebrates Labor Day in May, a day associated with an international labor movement or communism. And therefore, it's not sanctioned as a holiday here in this country. But the efforts of laborers to organize themselves have come first and foremost to gain job security, to prevent wage cuts or arbitrary firings. Yes, bread and roses, as the song said, but bread first and the 40-hour week, sick leave, PTO, those come later. The constant threat to job security is, of course, competition from cheaper labor. Labor uses strikes and boycotts, and management comes back with hiring replacement workers, sometimes from far away. There has always been a very ready supply of cheap labor here. The cheapest labor, of course, is free labor, by which I mean the work of enslaved Africans who literally built the nation's capital and much of this vast wealth of this country. Not incidentally, I read recently that the history of the family is in part the history of unpaid female labor. Think about that for a minute. Much more exploitation. Indeed, our whole national quest for empire from sea to shining sea was accompanied by cries from those who wanted free soil, meaning no competition from indigenous peoples or from formerly enslaved peoples. They were given 160 acres of free land from the government only a couple years before the succeeding president um, prevented those formerly enslaved people from getting 40 acres. The claims by white people of non-white labor taking our jobs have never really ceased, of course. In the words of historian Walter Johnson, pitting white and black workers against one another has been the principle of industrial labor management forever. In wartime World War I, Black workers were almost always employed in unskilled positions, segregated shops, facing discriminatory hiring practices and whites-only union. This sent an unmistakable message about the wages of whiteness, our skin privilege. This didn't change until World War II when a threatened march on Washington, like the one that did happen in 1963, forced President Roosevelt to end discrimination in wartime defense industries. I hope you know all this history, but I'm afraid that many of us don't. If you're keeping score, that's Executive Order 8802 from June 25, 1941. So even on Labor Day, to discuss labor is troubling and complicated, bringing up untold history and echoing many of our current conflicts. But the point must be made. When we celebrate those who labor, we don't count the developer or the investor. We count those closer to actually making this stuff. And we apportion wealth, strangely, in almost the exact reverse order. We all know who gets the wealth out of Amazon. It's not the driver or the warehouse worker. It's the ones who design the systems, which then rely on these workers. Most recently, we were told who was essential and who wasn't. That was pretty enlightening. Essential for whom? To what? essential enough to go to work in unsafe conditions because they were forced to or needed to pay bills. We know who these people were, are, and still will be. 
those who care for the elderly, daycare workers, electricians, plumbers, doctors, nurses, dentists, car mechanics, bus drivers, and way too many that I'm leaving out, and I apologize. But most especially, I would like to call out those who pick, plant, pack, transport, and serve our food. And there's more. There's an attitude about work. I was raised on what was called the Protestant ethic. Idle hands are the devil's playground. Hard work provides meaning, purpose, even happiness. We are asked what we do, and we seem to infer that they mean, what do we do to earn money? What is our work? And there's the notion that hard work is its own reward. So why complain about working conditions? But there's a counter-narrative here, too. What is thought to be the dignity of honest, sweaty toil is also thought to be servile, as if it's somehow demeaning to get your hands dirty. And that attitude lingers. I have an organic farmer friend in the Tri-Cities, and he says the only asparagus people he can find are immigrants from the South. So when we celebrate Labor Day tomorrow, we might be thanking those who do what we don't want to. Labor, whether unionized or not, is naturally opposed to property and capital. And if Labor Day gets one day, capital surely gets the other 364. It is, after all, called capitalism. So let's take a moment of gratitude. Thank a farmer. Thank a plumber. Thank a daycare worker. Let's take a little moment of silence. Thank you. But now I want to change channels. So if you have a clicker, get it out and change to um, away from the pointedly political discussion of labor to our own equally vital labor here, our work at East Shore. What do we do and what might we do? To me, the most critical element of our work is that it's not forced, it's not paid, it's not required. It seems to be entirely voluntary, chosen, and maybe arbitrary. Some might say that makes all our work low stakes, or maybe it's all just play. What will happen if I don't join a ministry team? What will happen if the board doesn't fully monitor progress toward our church goals? Heads don't roll, so why do anything? Why risk it? Well, what will happen if I let somebody down and break a promise? The notion of work is that something comes from it. In physics, work has a specific meaning. I looked this up because I'm no scientist. Work is done when force is applied to a mass and it moves in the intended direction. So if I try all day to push a 200-pound rock and it won't budge, I've done no work. And if I try to move that same rock and it goes sideways instead of forward, I've also done no work. So I'd like to use that definition here. Work has a visible outcome in the intended direction. What's our work at East Shore? The product is supposed to be to fulfill and enhance our mission, to do more of that mission, to make the words of our covenant and our chalice lighting real. So if we're not intending that, we're not doing proper work. And if we are intending that and we don't make any inroads in those directions, we haven't done any work either. Otherwise, we're just running around, staying busy, and maybe feeling very virtuous for being active. So what are we going to do? There's the do-nothing approach. Those in that camp might feel that the work is only to show up. And I want to say that only showing up is not nothing. 
It's not simply showing up. Being here creates a community, even virtually. It reminds us, as we've heard over and over again this morning, that we are in this together and we are not alone. We are all riding this same planet. There's a lot of truth there. And there's more. And this happens when we do show up and we act, and we act together. One of my best educators, a man named Schaff, would say, Hey, Red Eye, pick up the other end of this board and help me carry it. Something magical happens when we join forces. In the song we are about to sing, we say, Many stones can form an arch, singly none, singly none. For me, I find that an experience unshared is a lot less fulfilling than one shared. If I read a great book and have nobody to tell about it, what's happened? So I suggest that what we do together is ultimately more satisfying and more so more effective. Working together, co-labor. That's what the word collaborate comes from, co-labor. Not just going along, but actively participating in helping in a solution. Partnerships like that, lasting ones, across our own teams and committees here at church and in the broader community are what I dream about. This fall, we will be asked, you, I, all of us, will be asked by the ministerial search team to show up together, to show up on the 1st and 2nd of October, Friday night and Saturday morning. Mark your calendars, please, for a workshop called Beyond Categorical Thinking. This is a standard part of UUA ministerial searches, and it gives us a chance to open our minds about who we might accept as a called minister here. We'll be asked to show up and complete a survey. We'll be asked to show up for cottage meetings. There won't be in a cottage. They'll be virtual. And we'll be asked to show up for a focus group if we're on one of those teams. So please, please do it all. And what else? All summer long, we got encouragement from guest speakers. Janine said, build trust and then address the social justice issue. Bill Graves said we should influence the shapers of the Commonwealth to do the common good. Reverend Bailey asked us why there aren't 3 million UUs instead of 300,000 and what we could do to make real inroads and connections outside our doors. Reverend Steve behind me says, Membership Director Nicole can get people in the door and I might be able to keep them for three or four weeks with good sermons, but if they're going to stay, it's up to me and you, all of us, the members, to collaborate in creating something that makes people want to keep coming. What is that something? How best to do it? I don't have any answers. It's up to us each individually. But I'll close by suggesting that my work is to take the words of the mission to heart. Doing something new and risky is uncomfortable. Putting ourselves in situations where we might grow or change takes courage. Uh, but as Plato says, anything worth doing is seldom easy. So when people ask, Mike, what do you do? I hope I can say with Martin Luther King in the top quote on the order of service, I try to uplift humanity. Or maybe I'll say, I try to practice more love, promote more justice, explore more spirituality, build more community. May it be so. Thank you, and enjoy your Labor Day. Mike, our president's peon to the virtues of work, is well-spoken. I agree with all of it. And I want to pay equal tribute 
to work's corollary and counterbalance, the virtues that come to us when we honor the spirit of rest. After all, Labor Day, despite its name, is a holiday. Mike shared with me an opinion piece from a recent edition of the New York Times. The author, Cassidy Rosenblum, quit her high-powered job as producer at Here and Now, a national public radio news program, and is currently living with her parents in West Virginia. Ms. Rosenblum cites the ancient Greek philosopher Diogenes the Cynic, who eschewed, stayed away from, kept at bay, money, power, and fame, and instead sought to live life self-sufficiently and in tune with nature. Apparently, the ancient philosopher has a disciple more than one, but a lead disciple in contemporary China, the 31-year-old former factory worker named Lua Huzhong. He has drawn his curtains and gone to bed, left his job, and started the lying flat movement. Their assertion, one has a right to choose a slow lifestyle of reading, exercising, and doing odd jobs to get by. This trend is the natural consequence of China's hyper-competitive middle-class culture where employees often report working 12-hour days, six days a week. Cassidy Rosenblum, meanwhile, reports sitting on her parents' porch. Here in the hills, she writes, the new silence of my days, deepened by the solitude of the pandemic, has allowed me to observe the state of our planet in the year 2021, and it looks to be on fire as our oligarchs take to outer space. And it also, I might add, appears to be getting drenched. Even if our economy bounces back to normal, Cassidy wants no part of rejoining the parade. And she is not alone. Entry-level analysts at Goldman Sachs report inhumane working conditions and other competitive careers are equally soul-killing. Entry-level analysts at uh, Goldman Sachs make over 150000 but they also have incredible work weeks and no, nothing that nourishes them. Many black artists and intellectuals have embraced their own style of lying flat, perhaps because their enslaved and persecuted ancestors were never permitted to properly rest they recognize its importance to good health and a proper perspective. Now, you use Unitarian Universalists usually think of themselves, ourselves, as movers and shakers, activists with agendas to pass, programs to run, and lots of calories to burn off. 
And this is altogether a good thing, a wonderful thing, actually. But it is not the only thing. It needs to be balanced by time off, time away, time out for rest and relaxation. My summer has included a good bit of that, for which I am thankful and deeply appreciative of your largesse in providing ESUC, our church, the ministers here with such a generous opportunity yearly to refresh and recharge their batteries. But all of us need to design into our lives regular downtime from the day-to-day routines, no matter how ordered and systematized they are in our lives. I try to walk daily to a small pond in Spring Lake, Lake Desire Park, a little over a mile from our house. By the time I'm halfway there, I've left people and houses entirely in my rearview mirror, and nature nurtures and restores my spirit. Before finishing my tenure here, come late June, I hope to share with you the insights gleaned from walking along the water's edge here on the east side for me, what I call watershed consciousness. A few other random thoughts. The opposite of work is not idleness, but rest. Restoration when we vacate our minds, emptying our heads of the claptrap, of the buzz, the constant buzz of staying on email all the time, every day, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. I think of the Zen maxim, don't just do something, sit there. Yeah, don't just Action, action all the time. Just sit and be. Freud was once, Sigmund Freud was once asked um, by a reporter for the London Times, I think, you know, well, what was the, how did he recognize a sane, healthy person? And the reporter expected some complex, you know, psychological answer. He said, The ability to love and work, pretty simple. Can you love, be a loving person without resentment day to day? It's like what Martin Luther King, his final thing. Don't tell him I won over 40 prizes and the Nobel Peace Prize at my funeral. Tell him I learned how to love. And he surely knew how to work. And also think of one last thing, that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve tilled the soil. They had work to do. It's paradise. It includes work, but it includes uh, not only work. We are, love, we are great, grateful for this community where we can experience the joy of rest and the confirmation of others who pursue similar values and support us in our own struggle as we support them. Let this be a wonderful time of both work and rest for us this coming year.
so may it be. Amen and namaste.